0: Let me um, begin uh, this morning's sermon by uh, posing this question uh, to you. Straightforward question, I suppose. Maybe not a straightforward answer. Do we pray? That's it. Do we pray? Do you pray? Now, I know if you're a Christian... Of course, I accept that at some point, probably in each and every day, there'll be a moment where you say something to God. But perhaps you, if you're patient with me, you see something of the nature of the, the question Do we really pray, you and I? Are we really prayerful? What about uh, that verse that we looked at with the children in a kids' talk a few weeks ago? What was it? Pray without ceasing? Is that you? Is that me? What about that phrase? I think it was a Puritan phrase that Tozer used to take and repeat. Do we pray until we pray? Does that sound like us? You can see the nature of the question, can't you? At this point in our Christian experience, as you look back, just on the last week even, the last even 24 hours, or go back a bit further if you want, last month, the whole of this COVID situation, what do you see? are we really praying, you and I? Are we really a prayerful congregation? Well, this morning we come to what I think is quite a famous portion of Scripture, isn't it, Joshua chapter 10? Isn't it famous where apparently some kind of grand cosmological event happens? The sun, the moon, Stopping in the sky, but this is what I want you to grasp right from the outset. More than just being an intriguing, interesting portion of scripture, what we've got in front of us this morning is absolutely thrilling, believe it or not. It's thrilling. Let me tell you why. What we have here can be for St. Peter's a springboard. Are you struggling in your prayer life? Is that us? Are we really struggling to pray? Then sit up, because Joshua chapter 10 can propel us into deeper times of communion with God, and isn't that what we want? Joshua chapter 10 can launch us into times of sincere, hope-filled times of prayer, prayer with our triune God. So, can I ask you to to do what I always ask you to do. And can you please have the portion of Scripture open in front of you? Whether that's on a phone, I don't mind. If it's a tablet, you're off the hook. But as long as you've got the text in front of you, and even the folk at home can maybe run and get a copy of the Bible. And uh, let's notice, first of all, what we'll call, it sounds a bit fancy maybe, but we'll call it a paradigm of resistance. That's the first thing I want us to think about here from Joshua 10 hopefully that's not an omen of of some sort (laughs) but now I have your attention the first thing is a paradigm of resistance now even though it has been hasn't it um, with self-isolation and illness and so forth it's been a couple of weeks since we've been in Joshua hasn't it so even if that is the case I am hopeful that you can remember what had happened and you can remember where we were do you? You remember that we had seen the, the Gibeonites? Does that ring a bell, the Gibeonites? You remember we had seen how the Gibeonites had tricked their way into this uh, covenant, uh, this treaty with, of peace with the people of God. We remember that covenant of peace, I'm sure. Well, actually this morning, what we're seeing is a different threat entirely. So we see a group of people now. They, in the promised land, come up from the south, They gang up together, and they gang up against those who are in tow with Israel, with the church. Okay, so that's sort of big picture. But what do we need to be thinking about, you and I, here? What do we need to deal with? Well, the first thing that I want us to really get our heads around is what we might call the modus operandi of the world. The world, and it's M-O. Now, are you with me or not? with me? I'll explain it. What I, what I think we see here in the way that these people respond to God, these enemies, in the way that they respond to God and His people, what I think we see here is actually a pattern for how the unbelieving people in your life and the unbelieving people in my life, how they very often respond to God, His purposes, and to His church. Do you see the idea? We see a pattern, a paradigm here, an M-O of how people very often respond, unbelieving people respond to God, world's M-O. Now, I've said that, but what I want to do is just to point you to four points of correlation we see here. So the first thing we see is a personal threat. Can I ask you to look at verse 1 with me, please? Now, who are we dealing with? Look at verse 1. Who exactly are we dealing with? Now, you notice the name and so forth, but do you see how it is different to anything that we have dealt with thus far in Joshua? Do you see how it's different? Like previously, we have dealt with cities, haven't we? Where? Jericho, Ai, so forth. Or we have dealt with maybe alliances of cities and people groups, haven't we? But that's not what we've got here. Do you see how it's different? Here we've got individuals. We've actually got individual kings. You can see, I think, what's happened. Can you see what's happened? Israel is on the march. And these kings, they know, oh, wait a minute. It's not just our people, it's not just our land, but the kings know it's they themselves that are under pressure. They know that like Rahab, and they know like the Gibeonites, well, wait a minute, we've got a decision to make. How are we going to respond to these purposes of God? And you see what happens? What do the kings do? They're under pressure. So what do they do? They lash out. It's what they do. They personally resist God. Think about the unbelieving people in your life. Does that lashing out not sound familiar? A personal threat. Second thing, though, we see is a banding together. Because my next question for you, I suppose is very simple. What does this king, do you see his name, great name, Adonai Zedek, what does he do? Do you notice what he does here? He forms an alliance, doesn't he? So what you have is a number of enemies in the promised land, and they band together. They form a coalition to stand against the people of God. And I'm saying to you this morning, does that not seem to you and to me to be almost an integral part of the world's resistance to our God, this banding together against God and his people? I mean, you think with me about Psalm number two. What does Psalm two say to you? The kings of this world and the rulers, the counsel together, don't they, against the Lord and his anointed. Or if you want to think about the New Testament with me, what do you see? Where do you see this banding together? It's so obvious, isn't it? You see Pontius Pilate. What does he do? Does he just stand against our, ah, wait, Pontius Pilate and Herod banding together, forming this coalition of evil against our Lord. Do you see it? As you and I, as we seek to go out into Dundee and we seek to advance the purposes of God in Scotland, what we should expect to encounter is very much a united foe. And it's very often just the most unlikely bedfellows joining forces to stand against the people of God, the church and to stand against God's purposes. So we see a personal threat. Then we see this banding together. It's sounding so familiar to us. A third thing we see is a changing attitude. Can I ask you to look at verse 4, please? So who does this coalition rise up against? Now, is it Israel in the first instance? No. You see it, do you? So they rise up against the the Gibeonites. Now, why do they do that, do you think? Why the Gibeonites? You you might say to me, because they are a, a vast power or a great city? And I would say back to you, absolutely, but there's something more to it. There really is. I find this very interesting. That the Gibeonites, they also go by a different name. So the Gibeonites, when you're reading about the Gibeonites in the Bible, also have in the back of your mind that the Gibeonites are known as the Hivites. The Hivites, so just as are interchangeable terms, okay? Hivites, Gibeonites. Might not sound interesting. But what we have learned in the previous chapter is that initially the Hivites, the Gibeonites, they actually stood with these enemy forces against the people of God. Does everybody see it? So initially, the Gibeonites were part of an alliance, an alliance against Israel. But what's happened? The Gibeonites have changed their minds, haven't they? The Gibeonites have actually said, no, 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 we're going to stand with Israel. So can you see it from the position of these kings? I mean, they're furious. They're looking on, let's get these Gibeonites. Why? Because they have let us down. These Gibeonites, they're turncoats. They've been treacherous. These Gibeonites have betrayed us. And as we think about the spiritual correspondence with ourselves, can we not relate to that? In fact, are there not people in the room who probably can relate to that very, very personally indeed? What has been the reaction of some of our unbelieving friends and unbelieving family when we have professed faith in the Lord Jesus Christ? What's the reaction being? Sometimes it's, how could you do that to us? How could you let us down like this? You have become a Christian. You are a spiritual turncoat. You are treacherous. You are a traitor. Can we not relate to it? And then the fourth area of correspondence, we see an outright attack because isn't it interesting to know who instigates the trouble? So who starts the violence in Joshua chapter 10? Is it the Gibeonites? Do they start the violence? No. What about Israel? Israel is currently, Israel is minding its own business way back in Gilgal, not doing it. Who instigates the violence here? Listen very carefully. It is the enemy who instigates the violence. I'll say it again, here in Joshua 10, it is the enemy who is on the attack. And as we sit as Christians in 21st century Scotland, do we not again see something of a correspondence? Can we not relate to this, the enemy being on the attack? What about the kids in our congregation and the fact that they get so often laughed at just simply for having a connection uh, to a gospel preaching, believe in church? Do we not see the enemy's attack? What about the students in the room and the students who are joining online? What about you guys? What about the fact that surely there will be some sort of marginalization, ostracization, if you dare to raise your heads above the parapet and and side with a biblical view of morality? What about the rest of us? The ridicule, that we face in the media, the ridicule we face from various factions of society. If we say, I love Jesus, and I want to follow in his ways, can we not relate to this? And so do we not need to know how those who are opposed here, how they respond? Look at it, verse six. I mean, the Gibeonites are attacked. What do the Gibeonites do? Do you see what they do? They, listen, they cry aloud to Joshua, But it's more than that. It's on what basis? They cry aloud to Joshua on the basis of this covenant. They cry aloud to Joshua on the basis of this treaty of peace they have with him. And I would dare to suggest to you this morning that that for you and for me is a model to follow. A model of faith. How easy it is for you and I to forget how devoted God is to you. His child of faith. So easy for us to forget how committed God is to his church. God loves you so much that he has entered into an eternally binding covenant with you, Christian. He loves you so much. He has promised, God has promised, to be your God forever and ever and ever. So don't you see? On the basis of that divine pledge, what ought we do when we are opposed? What do we do? We cry out, not to Joshua. We cry out to the greater Joshua. We cry out to the one we know always, always, always comes to his people's aid. We see a paradigm here, a paradigm of resistance. Second thing that we must note in Joshua 10 is a picture of, of God. A picture of God. Now, excuse me. Have you heard about the time, uh, I think it was a few years ago, where Prince William, yes, him, the Duke of Cambridge, when Prince William anonymously manned uh, the phone lines in a national charity. Have you heard about that story? So Prince William anonymously manning the phone lines in a national charity. I, I, love the idea of how that might have gone down. <laughs> I love the idea of somebody phoning up to complain. <laughs> you know, phoning up and a few minutes into that, into that call and they've been sounding off and complaining... And then a couple of minutes later, they realize who it is that they've been speaking to. And they're replaying everything that they have been saying. And oh no, what have I been saying to the second in line to the throne? I've been complaining and moaning. I love the idea. It is always good, isn't it? Always good to know exactly who we're speaking to when we communicate. Now, that's true of Prince William is much more true, surely, of our God. So this week, if you and I, if we really are going to go into this week on bended knee, and if you and I are really going to have heartfelt times of communion and prayer with God, is it not absolutely essential that you and I have a biblical conception, a biblical understanding of who we're speaking to, of who God is and what he is like. It's critical, isn't it? If we're going to pray as we ought, I think we get help in this portion of Scripture. See, where are we in this account? Did you follow? Do you follow? The Gibeonites have been under attack. What have they done? They've cried out to Joshua, and Joshua has marched his army up overnight. Now, here's where we go. I would ask you at this moment, what do you think happens in Joshua 10? So I'll say it again. Gibeon's cry out, Gibeonites cry out to Joshua. Joshua and his armies march up overnight. What happens next? Now, do we think that Joshua arrives on the battlefield and absolutely obliterates the enemy? Is that how you've read Joshua chapter 10? Joshua and his army, they they appear on the scene, and they rout the enemies, and there's nobody left. Is, Is that our understanding of this chapter? I hope not. I hope you see that in Joshua chapter 10, it is actually your God who is shown to you as the victor in this chapter. Now, did you get that? Do you see it? It is actually God who is portrayed to you. Now, this is absolutely important. God is shown to you as a mighty warrior in this portion of Scripture, a warrior who defeats sin in judgment. Now, let me just point you to where we see it. Will you follow me, will you? Have a look, first of all, at verse 8, and you'll see it. Have a look at verse 8. Even the young people in the room can keep an eye on it as well. Verse 8, so do you see what happens? So Joshua travels up. What does God say to him? God says, don't fear, I've done this. I'm going to do this. God says, I've given these, these people into your hands. Do you see how it's a reflection of chapter one? It's God assuring Joshua of his help again. Then look into verse 10. So the coalition troops, they're all, all this enemy. They're sent into this frantic panic. So the enemies are freaking out. But who is it that leads them into fear? It's God in verse 10 do you see then verse 11 i love verse 11 you've got stones being hurled at the enemies young people don't fall suit no thrown stones but you've got stones being thrown at the enemies but do you notice who it is that's doing this it's god raining down hail from on high on the enemies and did you notice the, the detail as well god kills more of the enemies than all of the army could muster isn't it great you're getting a sense of the picture aren't you it's not so much Israel, although Israel's involved. It's God. It's this mighty warrior. But this is what I would love you to do. I'd love you to stick with me for the last bit of evidence here. So would you all look back at verse 10? Now, this is what we're going to do. You try and... I'll read it. I think it's the ESV. I'll read it. You try and establish what's happening here. What do you think happens here? I'll read it to you. And what happens? The Lord threw them into a panic before Israel who struck them a great blow and chased them by the way of the ascent. I'll read it again. What's happening? The Lord threw them into a panic before Israel who struck them and chased them. Now it reads, what do you think's happening? It reads almost as though God's caused a panic but then the army's taken over. Doesn't it read like that? As though Israel then strikes and chases. And there's an element of truth to it. This is what I want you to pick up on. All the verbs are singular. And if you've got a physical copy of the Bible, look at the footnote at the bottom of your page. Did you see? It's not so much Israel. it's, It's he. Isn't that amazing? So it's God who has struck them. And God chasing them. Surely it's not just me that finds that amazing. In Joshua chapter 10, you have God, the Almighty God, portrayed as personally pursuing his enemy. God shown to you as this mighty warrior on the charge. He strikes his enemy, he chases his enemy. It's God that wipes him, it's God who acts in sin here. And I think that changes, or it should change, everything for you this week. Because you can see the hope of this sermon. I'm, I'm sure you can see it. The hope is that from Joshua chapter 10, you and I are inspired to go into this week on bended knee and to come to God and, and, and to pray to him. That's the big hope of the sermon. You can see it, can't you? But my question to you would be this. Before whom will we be bowing? When you, even even this afternoon... As you bow before God in prayer. Who, who are you praying to? Is it this idea? Do you have this idea that you're praying to a little Jesus in the manger when you're, when you're praying? Is it little Jesus, you know, meek and mild? Or is it you struggle with the idea of God being a God of limitations? Do you struggle with the idea that, that it's God, a God who is disinterested? Can I say to you, no, it's this God. Like as a Christian, when you bow this afternoon, you are praying to this mighty warrior God, the God of Joshua chapter 10, the one we're just about to sing, Psalm 24. When we do, it tells you God is the king of glory, the one who is strong and mighty in battle. That's the God we pray to. Doesn't it change things? Doesn't it? Don't we now approach God with a certain degree of of wonder And awe and reverence. And do we not ask bigger prayers? Because who is this God? He is the mighty warrior. And he is the one who can chase down and strike down the sin in your life. God is the God, the mighty warrior, who really can chase down and strike down the unbelief in the people in your life, those who are presently at enmity with him, the mighty warrior God. So we see a paradigm of resistance. So we see the world's reaction. Then we see something of who our God is, the mighty warrior. And then the last thing we see here is the power of prayer. (coughs) Excuse me. The power of prayer. And at last, you see, we get to this famous detail in Joshua 10. At last, you see, we get to this moment where the sun and the moon are said to stand still in the sky. Okay, now, if you and I are going to understand this famous, this big moment in the Bible, first thing we've got to do is note the first words of verse 12. You're actually, as well, keeping one finger on verse 12. But do you notice the first words? It says, at... That time. You see how important that is? What that tells you is that when we're dealing with the sun moment, it's a flashback. Do you follow? So we are going back in time in verse 12 to when the battle happened. We're looking on at the battle from a different perspective. I think most likely this prayer for a stopping sun seems to be a prayer that Joshua is... Offered As he and the armies are marching up overnight. They're coming up to the battlefield and they offer this, Joshua offers this prayer. Now, that's fine, you say, but what's the question? The question is, well, what happened here? Really, what are we dealing with? Is this a moment where God presses pause on the planetary movements? Is that what happens here, if not what, what happened? Well, just as we close, and really briefly, friends... I just want to make mention of what I think are the three most likely proposals or interpretations of this. In just a word. You'll stick with me, will you? I mean, the sun and moon standing still in the sky. What is this? So just very briefly, three most, uh, I think, likely proposals. The first is that this might be figurative. So it might be metaphorical language. So um, elsewhere in the Bible, what you find are portions of narrative, portions of prose telling us a story about what's happened. And they are followed sometimes by sections of poetry that describe the same events. Does everybody follow the idea? So you've got narrative and you've got prose about an event and then it's followed by poetry and it tells the same story but in poetic language. Okay? So if you think about Moses crossing the Red Sea, if you read it this afternoon, you will find narrative and then a poem, a song that describes the same event. Judges for same sort of thing. Does everybody see the idea here? So what some conservative scholars, not completely wacky people, but some conservative scholars, they would say that's what's happening here and maybe... Do you see it yourself? Perhaps. This overnight march portrayed as the moon standing still in the sky. This long day of chasing God as he chases down the enemies portrayed as this long day as though the sun had stopped in the sky. One proposal is that this is metaphorical. Second proposal is that this is actually a prolonged day. So it could be, as you've got it perhaps in your Bible, the idea that what does God do? Well, to enable his people to properly chase down their foes, that God actually elongates the day, (laughs) either by increasing the amount of sunlight or actually, people, actually, by stopping the movements of the planets in in the sky. Now, I stand before you and I say, and I hold up my hands, that could be right. Absolutely, that could be right. Couldn't it? Our God of what infinite power could be right. And some of the old commentators, Augustine, he goes for this, and Calvin goes for this. But I think if you look at the text in verse 12, you'll see that there is a difficulty to overcome here when you think about exactly what you're told. Think about the geography in verse 12. So Joshua prays for the sun to stop or cease where? Where? Gibeon, in the east. And then for the moon to pause at Eidolon in the west. So why would Joshua be praying first thing in the morning for extra, for elongated light? Do you see? And why? What's he trying to do? He's trying to ambush the people. He's trying to sneak up on his enemies, isn't he? He's trying to sneak up on them, catch them unawares. Why at that point, first thing in the morning, why would he pray for light? And then the last, the third proposal is that what we might have here is an extended night or a period of darkness. And again, many Many conservative scholars would take this view. See, I told you to keep your finger in verse 12. There's a reason. I a look again at verse 12. Do you see the word stand still? So that's got a wide variety of meanings. Stand still. And one of the meanings can be the idea of ceasing. So like a, a woman ceases to have children. Ceases. See how important that is? ceases the sun ceases it could mean the sun ceases to move what else could it mean the sun ceases to give light the sun ceases to shine and would that not make much more sense of the context i mean can't you see it now joshua and his armies coming up overnight marching up overnight And the sun is beginning to break. The dawn's beginning to break. And they're trying to to catch these enemies unaware. So what does he pray? He prays, Lord, cease the light of the sun. Pause it there. Give us more darkness that we might kill our foes and punish evil. Now, which of these proposals is it? I don't know. Honestly, I don't know. I think I would side with the darkness, but I think it would be folly for us to be too categorical. But here is the thing. There is a massive danger for us right now. And the danger is that we could miss the whole point of Joshua 10. Because what is the point here? Do you see? What is shown to you has been amazing. Look at verse 14. What is shown to you as being amazing? Is it the fact that the sun ceased in the sky? Is that the amazing thing of this chapter? It is not. The amazing thing is that the sun ceased in the sky in answer to prayer. Look at it. In verse 14, like you can hear the author. There's never been a day like this. But he doesn't say there's never been a day like this where the sun stopped. It's never been a day like this when God listened to man and stopped the sun. And you just need to think back to the beginning of the sermon. You remember what I said? Surely this is thrilling. Because I think you would agree with me that. One of our great problems in the life of the church in Scotland is where we begin to lose confidence in the power of prayer. That's a huge problem for the church in Scotland. You and I may be beginning to lack faith and confidence in this means of grace that God has given to us, but what is God confronting us with here in Joshua 10? What is he showing us? The same God. Think of it. The same God that here bends the laws of nature and physics in response to prayer is the same God that loves you and you worship. The same God you can pray to this week. The same God. Do you see it? There really is amazing power available in the prayers of the saints. Prayer is something that is, can move mountains and make buildings shake and it can stop planets in the sky What incentive for St. Peter's to go to our mighty warrior God on bended knee this week and pray with sincerity. And I'll close with this very, very brief epilogue. I think, do you know, it's so wonderful for the people of God and the Christians in this room to think about this chapter. You've got Joshua praying and the sun ceases What's happening right now? Right now, I'm speaking to you, what's happening? Isn't it wonderful, Christian, to think that the greater Joshua is praying and interceding for us in here? Isn't that marvelous? It's an amazing thing for us to think about that as Christians. But what if you are not a Christian? Like, what if you're here maybe, I don't know, for the baptism? What if you're tuning in and you're not a Christian? How can you have that? How can you have a relationship with God that involves forgiveness, salvation, reconciliation? How is it that you could pray to God and be heard? How is that possible? Listen, for salvation this morning, you need to look to the cross of Jesus Christ. Now, I reckon even if you are not a Christian, you know what happened there. If you're not a Christian, consider it. I ask you, what happened at Golgotha? From the sixth hour to the ninth hour, the sun ceased in the sky. From the sixth hour to the ninth hour, darkness fell across the land. And like here... So that judgment might be poured out. But what is the amazing thing about Calvary? That judgment was being poured out, soaked up by God's only beloved son. That in order to secure salvation for his church, God himself, hear those words, God himself in the person of his son, he took the punishment that his people deserve. If you've heard that a million times and are not a Christian, or it's the first time ever you've heard those words, God himself has done this, the response if you're not a Christian should be the same. Right now, you need to pray. And you need to pray in light of Calvary. What happened there? You see the parallel. At Calvary, the mighty warrior God won victory. He won victory in the darkness. He won victory over the great enemy. He won victory over his people's sin. Friends, let's bow our heads and pray. Lord God, we... Confess to you that there are hard and difficult and confusing matters in Joshua chapter 10. We thank you for what is not confusing or difficult. That you show us yourself here, that you are the God who works salvation. You are the God who acts in judgment. You are the God who uses your people. But we thank you as we look to the cross, we see that you are also the God who has borne in yourself the punishment that we, your church, deserves, how it is that you are deserving of all of our worship, all of our praise. You are the majestic God. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Now we're going to uh, conclude our time of worship this morning uh, singing uh, a psalm that we referenced and, and looked at, God is a a mighty God, the King of glory, uh, the God strong and mighty in battle. So we're going to sing Psalm uh, 24 from verse 7 uh, to verse 10 to the tune St. George's, Edinburgh. You ancient gates, lift up your heads, you doors be open wide, so that so may the King of glory come forever uh,
1: to abide.
0: And if you're able, press this.
1: gates lift up your heads your doors be opened wide so may the king of glory come forever to abide but to EXALTED KING WHAT GLORIOUS KING IS HE IT IS THE LORD OF STRENGTH AND MIGHT THE LORD OF VICTORY IT IS THE LORD OF STRENGTH AND MIGHT the Lord of victory. You ancient gates lift up your heads. Your doors be opened wide so To who is this exalted King? Who can this sovereign be? The Lord Almighty, He is King of glory none let hmm.
0: for the benediction. And now, to the King, eternal, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen.